My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. Ralph Waldo Emerson said that language is fossil poetry. If that's true, then my guest today, Bio Kamalafe, is one of the most remarkable archaeologists and excavators of language's hidden meanings. Right now, as you listen to me talk, you're hearing these sounds I'm making, these words, and they're evoking images and impressions and understandings in you informed by your own journey through our world, through our society, and through whatever books you've read or talks you've heard or poems you've found. What I love most about bio, and there's a lot to love and a lot to say, but what I love most is his capacity to reformulate and reimagine and reconfigure and remember. And by that, I mean something that is dismembered has been pulled apart. Something that is remembered is put together again. His capacity to do those things with language in a way that deepens an understanding of what's true and real and also what is untrue and unreal, and also the ways in which those two boundaries that I've just made between true and untrue are where where the real opportunity for learning, growth, and discovery is. So that's what I love about bio, or one of the things I love. Who is bio? What could I even, where can I even begin to speak about his journey? I'm finding it difficult right now because he has intentionally and skillfully done tremendous work not to put himself into a container and to invite all of us not to contain ourselves. He's an author, a speaker, a teacher. Those are perhaps all words that feel familiar to you. He's also the executive director of the Emergence Network and the chief host of the widely popular online offline course and festival, We Will Dance with Mountains. He's a professor of practice at a number of colleges and universities around the world, including Middlebury College near where I am, Sonoma State University, Simon Fraser University, and Schumacher College. And uh, he lectures and speaks widely at events and gatherings and organizations all around the world. Most recently, he was the recipient of the 2021 New Thought Walden Award which is meant to honor people who use empowering spiritual ideas and philosophies to change lives and make our planet a better place. But another way we might talk about bio is that he's a self-styled trans public intellectual, which is a concept imagined together with and inspired by a much ancient, a much more ancient idea of a shamanic priesthood of the Yoruba healer trickster, who we talk about in our conversation today, Eshu. And Eshu is a deity, a divinity, a god who has a false face and a true one by some accountings, who by some accountings is understood to be evil or the devil, at least by perhaps more modern understandings and interpretations, and who can work with all of those tellings and many more besides to provoke us to be surprised, to be tricked, to fall into traps of our own making and discover that they are traps and that we are 
bound by the limits of them only because we be, we believe in their truth. So bio goes beyond justice and beyond speaking truth to power to opening up other spaces of power with places where our found formulations and configurations can be queered, can be altered where we can build an understanding and a connection with our history and our future right now in the present moment. A part of me is smiling right now because I wonder what I just said. Maybe I'll listen back to it and see if it made any sense. (laughs) It feels sensible to me. I can sense right now what I'm trying to communicate to you about bio. And I want to invite you into this conversation from a place of deep listening, from a place of not knowing, from a place of curiosity. It's possible that you'll hear some of Bio's formulations and be hit with a, or struck with a sense of, of what does that mean? My hope is that that happens. And that when you encounter that, what does that mean feeling? You don't, you are not immediately and unconsciously repulsed by it and running away from it, but rather stopping and going, what is the trick here hiding inside these words that might break open an understanding that I believe to be true, but in fact, no longer serves me. I think that's enough for now. So let's get settled in. (sighs) And hear what bio has for us. Hi, Bio. Welcome. Thank you so much, Andy, for having me here. Oh, it's such a treat. You know, I was sharing a bit of of what sparked me to invite you. And and one of the things that sparked me to invite you, there was a few things, but one of them was simply that I had like three or four people who didn't know each other all say, Andy, you got to invite Bio to the show to the show. So, uh, so I'm really, and, and I agreed with them. I was like, you're right. I should just invite him. So I'm really grateful and excited that you so graciously accepted and that we're, that we're here together. Thank you. Mm. I, I think I want to start if it feels all right with you, I think I want to start by talking about your beautiful, I don't know if we could call it a book. Uh, it's a, it's a book. It is a book in terms of a thing that, that we can pick up and put on the shelf, but it's actually a collection of letters to your daughter. And it's called these wilds beyond our fences letters to my daughter on humanity's search for home. Yeah. And, uh, before we started recording, actually, even just right before we started recording, we could hear the presence of my daughter and she was with us a bit this morning. And I just feel really alive to the, this artifact you've created that is expressly and intentionally an artifact you created for your daughter. And the words you use are, are something like when you're at the edge, open this book. I was just like, I'm really alive to that, that like sense of saying something to someone you love who might, might read it when they're ready and they'll, maybe they'll know when they're ready. Right. Right. It's, uh, it's like throwing one's voice. Actually, it's, it's really, (laughs) I, I often think about the book as me cheating death or, (laughs) or just time travel. It's, it, it it came out of a complex of emotions that lived with me as I was becoming father, right? Mm. Mm. Father is not a title that one immediately assumes um, in a single moment that it's uh, growing into, that always calls upon uh, the exceeding gathering, the village, the others, and I wondered, who do I call into this conversation, this ongoing fragility, this vulnerability, this never showing up, this sometimes regretful, um, disappointing of my daughter, uh, because I need to keep an appointment. Who do I call? Who do I convene to hold space with me for this moment? Because I know I'm not going to measure up to the father, to the ideal of the father, the troubled ideal of the father that I grew up with. 
again, n- not to say that I had a troubling relationship with my father, but the pristine notion of the person who has all the answers has some trouble associated with it. Yeah. And this book is the, uh, is the convening of monsters and futures that I will never visit in time and tears and grief. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It strikes me as a book filled with wonderful questions as opposed to definitive answers. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. It is. Mm. It is that. So if you're, uh, when your daughter, who, if I understand, is around eight now. She is. Yep. So at some point, maybe when you're still alive, maybe probably when you're still alive, uh, you know, she'll be a teenager. She's halfway to being a (laughs) 16-year-old, which is a which is a pretty big moment, right? So at some point, she will read some or all of this book, and so you've this kind of sense of cheating death or traveling to the future is a really like that's really potent to me. That metaphor, that idea. What's your what are you sort of imagining or hoping for or wondering about at that moment where she cracks open the book and sees the dedication and, and says, you know, for you, when you're at the edge, open this book, like what's your sense of who she is or who she might be or what you're hoping for when that moment comes. I'm hoping that when she opens the book, and she's opened the book many times, but she closes it almost immediately. It suggests <laughs> she isn't she isn't ready for conversations about Brownian motion and quantum physics. She isn't ready for that now. But I'm hoping that one day she opens it and she's possessed, quite literally possessed in this in with the notion of possession uh, that candomble candombleristas in Brazil, the Afro. Brazilian tradition and religion, um, if one might call it a religion, the way they construct possession is like uh, a membranous openness to experimental divinities. Should I call it that? Mm-hmm. That gods are still being made and and home is still being, uh, the question of home is never final, right? So I'm I'm hoping that she is possessed by this tentativeness, that this sense of wonder, and that the book becomes part, at least a part of her cartographical project mm. that allows us to, to look at things through strange eyes, to listen with errant ears, you know, ears that go astray, you know, to fall away from the algorithms of the familiar, to not just get a job and to get a life, but to to find the sensuous otherwise, the elsewheres that are usually folded in the creases of, of the commonplace. So I'm hoping this book will not be, you know, I don't want her to see me or her mother. In fact, I ended the book saying, I hope you you remember your mother more than you remember me. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert. Right. But I, I, I hope it's not a linear trajectory. I hope the book is not a portrait of her parents but is an invitation a window to a world that is so much more unspeakably so much more than we can Mm. think of Mm. 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 do you have a sense of the experimental gods that are being created right now that maybe are exciting that possibly if some of those quote-unquote deities possessing or maybe scary like what 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 are you noticing that we're creating right now that's that's ruling us or or infusing our us in the ways that that we might think of god's doing interesting question i'm writing an essay on cancel culture right now oh wow (laughs) and uh i don't know why i got suddenly bashful saying that um (laughs) but but uh like, oh, well, you should see what I'm doing, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I I name a god. Uh, well, this essay I'm actually writing about cancel culture doesn't name that god. 
Um, but in the one that I'm already charting out to write in my next book, the book to come, is about the God that I call the sensorium. Mm. And this God is like one of the titans that did not die in the battle with Zeus and the other uh, Grecian gods. Um, and the sensorium is this giant creature um, that has an economy on his back and the economy traffics to live in that place is to traffic in being offended. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, but, but, mm. but it, it's mm. not my way of dismissing or pathologizing or vilifying what the phenomenon known as council culture day. It, it, it's my invitation to notice that we're dealing with entities that are much more than what we can control. We're dealing with archetypes. We're dealing with cybernetic patterns that are so vast in their territoriality that we want to be careful about how we wield this weapon. Mm. Mm. I can't help as you name the sensorium and kind of the titanic influence that that uh, economy that it's carrying on its back, that sort of maybe carrying all of us on its back in a way. Yeah. So that's like a very potent image and, and there's a bit of us just like being taken by the sensorium, whether we want to or not. But then I can't help think of, uh, of Eshu, if I'm saying that right, the, the trickster God from, from the Yoruba tradition, who I just immediately, my inner system goes like, well, well, if anyone's positions to play with the sensorium or to help perhaps help people see themselves in that, that big economy and maybe even step out of it. Uh, Eshu might be one of these, these uh, entities to do that, this kind of trickster like quality that, that evokes. And I wonder if that resonates with you. And if so, maybe you could say a bit more about your relationship to Eshu and how they might show up in relationship to the sensorium. Correct. Um, issue is, uh, I grew up, knowing issue as the devil, um, Satan, mm. horned beast, 666. That was issue for me because, oh, wow. you know, the, the work of the British missionaries who came and who translated um, the Bible into Yoruba tongue. Actually, it was a Nigerian. It was a Yoruba person who was stolen as a slave, but found some favor and then became an Anglican priest. And I think an Anglican priest and then translated the Bible into Yoruba for the first time. I think he borrowed from our, from his culture, our culture, the, the, the name of the trickster God issue because he was the most mischievous. Mm. And so issue has come to be known mm. as um, the devil. Right. As a result of Samuel Ajayi Crowder, that's the priest, um, as a result of his translation. Well, long story short, um, I am in a different place entirely about issue. Um, not just to say that he's not the devil. I don't think he's quite interested in, in defending himself. Like, oh, I'm not the devil, guys. He's like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> what do we do with this, you know, devil? Hmm, I can work with that. You know, I think I think that's what he might say. And I say he because it's just easier. And that's how I grew up with issue um, around. Um, but he he transcends those gender designations. Um, yes, you're correct in stating that issue might um, invite us to um, notice that we're not as complete or as coherent or as in charge as we think we are, mm-hmm. right? Um, that there's something about the universe that is a crossroads effect, that the universe is constantly um, not against, but hostile uh, to computability, mm-hmm. um, linearity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about the universe that is that once you say, for instance, I've got it figured out, you are kind of 
inviting it should come in and say, you say what, say what, say, say that again. <laughs> you haven't, <laughs> what? That, no, 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 you haven't arrived. You're not there yet. And the yet, the jurors are out on what even yet means. You're dead, by the way. I killed the jurors. So they're not even coming back into the courtroom. Um, so he's this malicious, duplicitous, and yet um, almost... Uh, imminent transcendent, a hyphenated uh, composition for the purpose of our conversation, uh, becoming that, you know, that that signals to us that the world is constantly becoming emergent, open-ended, never fully um, distilled into the one thing, right? Promiscuous, seeking, teenage. Um, and yet, and yes, the, the sensorium be, uh, it, used in that way is, again, the invitation to notice that um, we might have good intentions about enacting healthy boundaries, um, about accountability, what it means to be responsible today. Nothing is ever the one thing. So even in my work around holding these phenomena and looking about, you know, looking around them or looking at them in different ways that might be interesting to my readers. Um, you know, I don't try to pathologize it, to name it as one thing. Let's get rid of cancel culture is... Nah, that's nah, part, of, that's, that's of, part of the pathology, right? Like, yes, let's cancel yes. cancel culture. I'm, I'm going to cancel cancel, cancel culture. culture. I'm going to do it, right? I'm, like, that's, that's I'm going to do it, it by, by hating on people that <laughs> do not agree with me. <laughs> By the time I'm done, you know, it'll be, oh, I will done. lay waste to the non-believers. <laughs> you know, I it, I don't want to get biblical with the language like smite smiting cancel culture and all of that, but um, yeah, there there um, there is a sense that I wouldn't even get rid of white privilege. I wouldn't get rid of capitalism um, because you know these social anal analytics are not stabilized entities. The world is too, too ecstatic to mm. condense into one image, right? Mm. This mm. is the meaning of white privilege. Um, but the world is constantly interfering with itself. Nature is not one stable foundation. Mm. Uh, so even whiteness is a becoming. Even, even <laughs> I mean, Fred Moulton would say that blackness is dislocation. And I think of it this way, that Blackness is not just identitarian. It's it's this resistance of everything to name itself or to Christian itself as if for the first time. So to be, to, to, you know, to be a student of Blackness is to be a student of emergence. Mm. So yeah, the sensorium is issues uh, work now, and I'm trying to listen hard. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. There is so much in there. I want to just take a moment to see. What's pinging me here? Maybe to simply mirror that, that for all the ways that uh, there are parts of me who are uncomfortable with the idea of a mischievous, horned, seemingly uh, evil, but maybe only because I'm seeing it through the lens of, of kind of the, the Christian culture I grew up with, like, there's something about issue as an, as an entity that has um, a repulsive quality to it. Like, yes, yes. And that, and that, and what I'm hearing you say is like, actually it's that very quality that, or at least a part of what I'm hearing you say is, it's that very quality that, that I, that parts of me are so repulsed by that actually are inviting me and us into looking at some of the stuff that we take to be sacrosanct, that, that, that we, that are taboo, that are unspeakable. And as she would say like, yeah, we're going to, I want to help you talk about that. <laughs> that's why it's scary. <laughs> and that's why you're feeling repulsed right now is because I'm going to help you talk about a thing and look at a thing that feels fundamental, but in fact is just, just sand or water, or I don't know what that to, for us to play with. Actually, correct. It's, uh, it's, it's the repulsion, right? I, I think taboos, which is, you know, I think from the pollination word tapu, which means approach with great hesitation. Mm. Um, and then in English it became do not do this at all, but 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 tapu means mm. come slowly, 
mm. come with, mm. with gentle feet. Mm. So it's it's that there is a sense in which we need boundaries. We need images. It's images mm. that produce things, right? Not some lofty notion of emergence, but but that um, we work within images. But images are by themselves wounds of emergence. It's like to wound emergence is to create the image. <laughs> wow. So there, there isn't a, it, you could say that the ongoingness of the universe is, um, or, or we live within the wounds of emergence. You could, mm. you could put it that way. Right? Mm. Um, and um, one of the things that we try to avoid is, uh, you know, are the edges, the outer edges of, of the taboo, the repulsion. Um, and we need those boundaries, but it is often the case that in order to shape shift, we will need to go to those dark places, mm. right? Um, we will need to stay with the intractability of our shit, um, <laughs> the unwieldiness of, of compost. We will need to, we will need to meet the shadows, the monstrous edges, the wilds beyond our fences. Yeah. Um, or we risk, we risk playing with numbers and games and languages, you know, just to reassure ourselves that we're moving things or moving pieces. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Are there particular uh, wilds that you find yourself drawn towards right now? It sounds like engaging with cancel culture is one. Are there other sort of edges that other people might see as taboo and in the English understanding of that, like be completely repulsed, but you are actually seeing like, this is an edge that if we approach it slowly and gently, there's something here for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's failure in general. It's a, well, there's no such thing as failure in general, yeah. but um, I, I kind of intentionally phrase these very thick and dense places as sites of failure, you know, sites of mm, generate, mm. I call it generative incapacitation, that there's something about the work of these times, which is not human in its origin or human in its operationalization, um, but human in its humility. It, it, it's, it's like an invitation to the human to participate in the cracks that are opening up on the planet. These are onto epistemological, ethical cracks. Onto, ontological meaning the nature of things, epistemological meaning how we know what we value as knowledge and ethical, what comes to matter as opposed to what doesn't. So it's how things, how these structures of thought and thinking and technologies and um, our lives, experiences, phenomenological things, how, how they come to matter. And um, I, I frame this approach as post-activism, not as a superior form of activism, but as an invitation to notice that um, it's towards the cracks we, we want to go to with regards to climate change, with regards to racial justice, with regards to social justice issues, the Anthropocene, all these matters I feel are entangled issues. And we want to go to the place of disability because it's not capacity that is the edge, it's incapacity. It's on, on learning mastery, right? It's learning to fall to the ground and to be humiliated. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's oh, that's humus. interesting. And, and like humus, earth, earth humus, yes. humus yes. is in humiliation. Yes. Mm. Yes, mm. it's a prostration. Like the Yoruba people would prostrate and press their faces to the ground in the presence of an elder. Like there is, we are living in a world that is vast in its intelligence and instigatory. It's not just a trope for human resources. It's a, or a warehouse for all the things we want to take to instrumentalize for our familiar economies of doing and thinking. It is a world that is doing things on its own. It has its own activisms. Mm -hmm. It has its own powers mm -hmm. and intelligence. So, so it's like we have to, we have to go to the, to the edges of things. And th these edges are not just metaphorical qualities. They're right around us in the ordinary, in suburbia. It's here. <laughs> and 
we have to learn to to be there together. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I live in a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, and and uh, and and what I'm uh, actually I'll just name one of the wonderful. I don't know if it's an edge, but it's certainly a, a challenge or an opportunity in trying to talk about this, what you've, you've used the word emergent uh, as one word, is, is trying to talk about what's here. Yeah, We need these images, which in a way kind of wound emergence because it, it constrains it, it limits it, it brings us in, it, it sort of reduces it to the point where we can now use our words to say a thing and maybe evoke yeah. a, a picture. So there's yeah. just a sort of a bit of a paradox in like, even talking about the edge is yes. its own edge. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. So I want to name that. And as I find myself at that edge, then I'll sort of shift to go like, I live in a, a, a suburb of Boston populated by people, mostly with white bodies like mine. Um, mm-hmm. I get this wonderful local newspaper, you know, like it feels a bit old timey. Like here's, there's a, a group of people who are printing and putting in my mailbox a newspaper and, and and my the most interesting and provocative place that I that I find in that newspaper are letters to the editor because what I'm mm. reading are my fellow townspeople writing letters to express a point of view on an issue. And the yeah. biggest issues that are showing up in the letters to the editor relate to things like climate change and uh, okay. sustainability, uh, relate to things like uh, racism and racial justice, uh, relate to yeah. things like voter rights. Um, sort of to the workings of like to that what although those can be pretty charged topics to your point they are the fabric of the everyday ordinary suburban life of which we all uh, and when i say we all i mean everyone who lives in this town finds ourselves in and um and what i notice again and again and this i think is will be no surprise but and is mirrored on many levels is there are some deep polarities showing up. Uh, Either critical race theory is the answer to all of our educational questions about uh, a post-racial future, or critical race theory is a form of of indoctrination uh, that's going to eradicate all that's beautiful about American culture. Either uh, either, uh, Republican voters are evil you know, profane racists who hate everyone, or they are the stalwarts preserving the fabric of our society. Right. And so these letters are just like a wonderful, like that person might be just down the street for me. I don't know them necessarily, but they could be like, wow. So like I see in the fabric of everyday life, exactly what you're talking about, these edges playing out and, and what worries me maybe, and I would love to hear you play with this. It's like mm-hmm. it's it when I see those polarities, I get a little scared, I get worried, and I wonder what happens when you see those kinds of polarities because they feel like that they actually feel like they're pointing towards the edges that you're talking about i was uh I was on a call a conversation with an institute in Germany, and they were asking me questions about climate change, and I think the first remarks I made was um, to say that maybe we need to rethink what climate means, right? Uh, Mm. Mm. We often think of climate as the weather outside, Mm. um, outside our windows. Um, But there is a sense in which um, we can't just stop there. We we have to acknowledge that um, the weather outside has effects on how we create our homes, um, how we build our cities. Um, and if it has effects on how we build our cities and our homes and how we create educational paradigms and policies, then it has effects on us, right? Um, and if it has effects on us, then where do we take that even further? Um, it has effects on how we eat and how we sleep, what we do with technology, what we do with education, how we frame and model our families. In short, it's not as outside or as external as we think. It is. It has already infiltrated, you know, the the sharp membranes of the humanist project. It is. It is inside. It is. We're exposed. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so I'm, I borrowed Astrida Neimanis's 
um, formulation to say that we are weathering bodies. We are also marked like three uh, tree rings, you know, um, and and bent and swayed and moved and oriented um, like plant life. We're not exclusive as we think we are. And and my point here was to say this, and this is my punch, that what if what we name as climate change is the uh, exhaustion and the, um, dare I say, the end? I don't want to sound that sharp, but I guess you understand my hesitation with that. So I'll say it all yeah. the same. Yeah. Um, what if it's the end of the anthropos and the anthropos, mm. the man, the human, mm. right? What if mm. what we we term, uh, you know, create terminologies for, for like sustainability and climate change and all of that, it signals the withdrawal of the endorsement of the world for the continuity of modern civilization or the idea that the human can continue on unbothered into the nameless colonial future. How do we sit with that? Now, this is not to conjure some notion of some Hollywood iterated notion uh, of, you know, some apocalyptic end. You know, that's not my point here. But but to, to, to suggest that things have shelf lives, things are limited, um, things have boundaries. If we think of, about the human, not as Andy, you know, or me, the anthropological figure, but if we think about the human as a way of acting upon the world, as a way of terraforming the planet, as a way of thinking about clock time mm. and bodies mm. and marketplaces and hope and temporalities, if we think about all of that as a meshwork of relationships, then could it be that we are witnessing the symptoms of its dying, of its demise? Um, And to stretch that thought even further, what if the telltale signs of its sign you know, of its demising, you know, is felt in our increasingly beleaguered um, practice of politics, right? <laughs> yeah. The reason I asked a question yeah. recently, what if, what if cancel culture is a symptom of climate change? It's like our head in a vice, our bodies are constricted. And because Uh, the nation states, the global order of nation states is premised on the superiority of the premise of citizenry. Basically that you want to be a good citizen. You want in the public order that we're creating, citizenship is the best way to be on the planet. You don't Mm. want to be a vagabond Mm. or criminal or fugitive. You want to be in the city. This is the life. This is how to live on the planet. And and that comes with entitlements and privileges. Other bodies have some proximity to it. Um, other other bodies are poised on its on the top of the pyramid, you know. And it's getting lonely at the top of the pyramid, right? Yeah. So it's it's yeah. like um, it's like we're in, we're we're in a place where citizenship itself is becoming shriveled, mm. and mm. there is now mm. only space or place for the victim, right? Mm. Because victimhood has historically and ideologically traced its roots to the perpetuation of the state and the industrial order, which is the reason why if you search through um, and come to understand the origins of the notion of trauma from, which was once called railroad sickness, you know, um, by um, Erickson uh, and through a line of um, uh, somatization and psychologization became increasingly psychologized and internalized. And now we think about suffering as just trauma, right? Mm. Even Mm. the notion of trauma itself is a colonial enterprise. Mm. The notion of Mm. trauma itself is, is a way of capturing um, the unspeakable, the unsaid and anchoring it to the eternity. Yes, yeah. Uh, we're, we're not just in the body, like our fleshly bodies, but the body of the modern, mm. the body mm. of the independent individual. Like mm. the, the institution mm. 
that trauma serves as a as a spokesperson for is the individual the individual it's like a corralling of mm-hmm. suffering and questions about what it means to suffer and what it means to be alive into the individual but that's another conversation and yeah. so i think i think we are because emotions are not themselves human entities or human phenomena they're atmospheric they're they're ancestral they're intergenerational in a sense maybe we're witnessing this global pandemic of despair and it's pressing our politics into increasingly pixelized spaces mm. and it's getting choky and so we do not even know how to meet each other without being afraid of each other mm. we do not know mm. how to speak with each other we do not know how to hold space for complexity and dissent and alternative ideas um or the or the notion that even facts are wild right um and 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 that facts like i like to say vibrate at the speed of mystery so there isn't uh, a world that is container like a container already populated with distinct newtonian cartesian facts that we can just pull out of uh or pull down i think our politics is suffering yeah. our politics is, is increasingly um like a creature of where modernity as we often name it in conversation is mm. yeah mm. yeah and as i touch into that sort of beautiful hypothesis or or invitation that that what i see in those letters and the editorial are kind of little glimpses of the kind of shriveling sense of what it means to be a citizen and in a lot of ways it yeah. feels like well, to be a citizen is to take a stand for a point of view and to shout at someone about it. <laughs> like right. that, that's one of the sort of shrivelings that I that we that I might point to or an image I might point to to describe that complexity. Yeah. Um, what I hear you sort of offering is that that end of the individual or the end of of man the it is not an apocalyptic end but rather an opportunity for us to say this story of me as on one side and you on the other of me the guardian of something and you the the enemy of it and both of us yeah. feeling the same way yeah. is simply uh like the end product of centuries of story about what it means to be a citizen and what it means to be yeah. part of a city state or a nation state. Yeah. And yeah. that story just isn't working anymore. Uh, and if we allow that to end, then maybe actually there's something else that's truer. I don't know if true is too strong a word, but truer. Yeah. Grounded I understand in, in truth. Yeah. And, and yeah. from that place, there's something new that's no longer man, but something else that's, that's more able to meet reality. Hmm. And that really excites me as a possibility. Is that resonating with you? Definitely. It's, it, I mean, people might, different people might frame it differently, like saying we're expanding the notion of the human. I'm usually suspicious of dynamics of inclusivity. Like let's bring more people into the human, which is, which defines our politics of recognition yeah. today. Yeah. Like, oh, you yeah. guys, let's give you a seat at the table. Yeah. It's just right. that the, the, the restaurant is in flames. Right. <laughs> I, don't I, don't want, want, I don't want to sit at that table. <laughs> that table looks terrible. It's on fire. Yeah. The, the restaurant is on fire. The chef is, <laughs> isn't, the chef is quit and we're waiting for our food. And so we're fighting for food, like Black Friday yeah. right now. So yeah. is it Black Friday or Black Saturday? I don't know, Black Friday. Uh, that was like a week um, or two ago. But yeah, yeah. Oh, I really? Think, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, know I mean, that, that, that particular burning table is maybe you know still burning but yeah a lot of people it's still burning and we're, we're waiting yeah. for the waiter to bring our meals is yeah. so so people might frame it differently and and but i frame it as um uh, to to read between uh frank wilberson and and fred moulton uh, that it's 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 like a social death but it's a death that is queered and and that is lively you know i'm not Mm. trying to find some socratic middle it's like there is there is something about um the public that we tend to think of as just this vacuous space for 
us to do what we will. You know, mm. some mm. iteration of the American dream, like make of yourself what you want to, like do something with your life. Mm. The, the space is, the, the ground is flat. The ground is flat, folks. Do what you want. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, and, and do something with your life. It, what the public order hides are bones, mm. right? Mm. Bones that have been buried, slave bones, children bones, mm. ancestral bones. And sometimes, brother, though the surface gets weary, and it tears apart, it cleaves open, and it reveals slave bones. And then the public becomes haunted. And then we now ask, what do we do at this moment? And then someone steps up and says, let's cover it up. So we cover it up and then we say, justice! And then we start building our towers of justice upon those bones again, which is the reason why I say justice can often get in the way of transformation, right? Justice is a secretion of the public of the public order, but it wants to maintain the public, but something haunts the public and this software, this guardian of the public. And sometimes justice, the way we practice it, the ethnography of justice occludes and elides and pushes away the very strong Atlantic voices, you know, the oceanic voices of the modern human saying there are other things that are possible at this time. But you have to come into a modest kind of politics, a politics of shape-shifting, a politics of waiting at the edges, a politics of feeding each other, you know, and sharing disagreement, not as a thing to get around, but as a gift, you know, of this cross-cutting world. Mm. Mm. I'm getting this really potent image from your sort of the the entity you presenced earlier, the sensorium and this kind of yes. like way in which it, for me, it's showing up as this really large, like sort of Titanic, as you said, like large lumbering power that's, that's literally stepping on the bones and grinding them. But as it does, those of us who are riding on its back, some of us are falling out the back, our bones are falling out the back. We're kind of being pushed out and secreted and maybe, maybe even shat out. Like we're just sort of like, there's this sort of brutality to the like, we must maintain the order. We must, there are yeah. no bones yeah. justice. Like what you're describing that, uh, the brutality present, even in that impulse, I, the, I, which has something of, uh, how can we make this right? Still, yeah. still perpetuates the very kind of, uh, paving over that you're pointing to. And yes. And I just, so, so I'm noticing a part of me that wants to go, okay, like this is tell, tell me what to do now, bio, <laughs> right? Like, okay, tell me how to participate in a way that isn't from the stance of the citizen that has been so uh, shriveled and withered and kind of um, deprived of its vitality. Um, but maybe, maybe rather than asking you to tell me what to do, but maybe we could play with what if, when we saw, when the ground cleaved open and we saw the truth that what the that and 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 literally like where I live I could there are probably places where if I knew where to dig and how to dig I could find those actual bones of of indigenous Americans for instance or some of the first settlers who might have had a, a contrary point of view uh, let's mm. uh, you know like we, there are you're not being metaphorical you're being literal when you say there are yeah, bones yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yes. And so, so Absolutely. what do we, what might we do when the ground cleaves and that impulse to cover it up shows up and we say, no, we're not going to cover it up. What might that look like? What's your sense of that? Well, the refusal to cover it up, to expose the wound is sometimes coincident, uh, coincidental with, um, coincides rather, I would frame the sentence that way with maybe the pedagogical impulse to build altars. So mm. I think I think of altering as an aesthetic, an artistic, performative aesthetic of marking or plain host to the invisible. This is what I call making sanctuary. And it's not the one thing. It's not one thing. It is an ongoing experimentation with what that question really, what do we do at this place? Um, a stain with the trouble. Brief story. When I was a really practicing Christian, I read this uh, book called Our Daily Bread. 
you might have you might know a bit you, you obviously don't i would have gotten the wide eye of recognition so, so you don't know this this is a, a, a yearly thing with um devotional a devotional yes that's that's it with daily messages scripturally based one story that still stays with me and i really enjoyed reading this every time one story that stayed with me was the story of a young man who cried out to God for his purpose. Mm. Like, tell me what I'm supposed to do with my hands. Tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life. Teach me how to count my days. And God comes into the picture and takes this young man um, to a place and says, you see that big boulder, that huge rock, that smooth and round? And says, yeah, I do. So push at this, push at this rock. And so the guy like, oh, Let's do it. And so he folds his sleeves and he gets to the to the work of doing it. And then he pushes and struggles and sweats. The thing does not move an inch. Hmm. And he's pushing and pushing and sweating and despairing and, uh, you know, motivating himself, getting back up and pushing and pushing for years. You know, different story. I'll say yeah. years. And yeah. he's pushing and pushing. Nothing budges. And then God comes back, looks at the stone, looks at the man and says, oh, good. Great job. Just to- wonderful and, and and he protests that are you being sarcastic right now because I, I didn't move nothing it didn't budge it didn't move at all and god said i didn't ask you to move it i asked you to push at it and mm-hmm. then takes the man to uh now a man no longer a young boy takes him to a river and shows him his reflection and the man has changed the man is now a man he mm-hmm. muscles bulging he's different and then he goes on to somewhere else. I like that story mm. because, you know, we we, lit- we sometimes think that transformation is squarely in our hands. It's in what we do. Um, but there is no doing that is not a doing with, right? We do with the world. We act with the world. Mm. We, we mm. don't act independently. This, this thing we're doing right now, you know, well-intentioned journeys across the world to find answers to the crises that face us as a species today. Beautiful. It's just that whales are not in the room. Neither can they be invited. Ants are not going to be invited. Trees have a thing to say, but they won't use words we can understand. Mm. That there is a sense in which this is not left to us. Mm. And we're being, we're, we're, we're being invited to stay with a shocking realization of that that the new is not an ethical monolith um and it's not just on our trajectory in the future waiting for good people to rise up to the moment that sometimes it will take repulsion it will take shadows it will take death and dying that our failure is even part of the ingredients the recipe to 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 hold answers for this moment one last thing i'll say about this is that a crack is not the proliferation of a single already made message, right? Like when a crack opens up, the bones do not speak, save us, or even don't save us. It's not a singular thing is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That the, the cracks are intensities. You know, there are new intensities, potentially new intensities that have disruptive um, effects. And to follow this failure, you know, as desire flows away from its compartments, to follow this failure, to practice listening anew, you know, and to hold the space of, you know, to bring all we can, the others that we can do this research together to congregate this politics Mm. of uh, Mm. going Mm. invisible or fugitive. To do that is, I think, um, the best answer or the best way that I can at the moment frame responsivity to these Mm. times. Mm. Mm. Thank you for playing with that. And I'm in touch with sort of play with both the metaphor and the literal. I'm in touch with people, maybe people who once thought of themselves as, as enemies on opposing sides of the fence, which is now opens to a crack gathering, congregating around that crack and looking and being with the not knowing and being with the listening, but being together 
and yeah. the looking and the listening and the wondering yeah. about what do we do with this? What do these yeah. bones have to tell us about who we were and who we are now and who we might become? And from yeah. that kind of congregation, there might be something vital and alive that isn't here in the sort of current condensed, crunched politics that you've described. Yes. It's mm. a modesty, really. It's a, mm. it's a very... Mm. It's a very humble politics. It's not resistant to answers. It's not resistant to what some might call old patterns, like don't behave that way. That's not what we're going going to do in the future. You know, it's not it's not the one thing, but but it's mostly defined by an attitude of being present with the trouble, and and being hospitable to, you know, the the things that we are we mostly just discard and push aside or misappropriate in our attempts to pave the way on the backs of the sensorium into the future. So, um, yeah, there is promise in that it's a promise of monstrous, uh, mm. monstrous bodies and becomings. Hmm. Bio, I'm uh, attending to the time as I promised I would. And I'm aware that we're approaching this, this boundary <laughs> an edge um, I forgot to mention before we started recording uh, that one practice I'm going to really make a formalized practice in the new year for this show, for this program that I forgot to share with you in advance and also forgot to even mention when we started is that I w- I'm inviting all of my guests to bring a benediction or a blessing, a poem or a reading. Uh, and and so I wonder if maybe we pause the recording for a minute while you have a chance to think if there's something at your fingertips or in your mind or heart, something that, that you could share with us as just a kind of uh, reading or a blessing for our show today before we finish up. You know how Bernie Sanders always speaks about the 1%. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Uh, well, I feel, I have I've often own... felt the burn, but yeah, continue. Yeah. You, fr- you felt the burn too, right? <laughs> like I have my own 1% spiel and it's the times are urgent, let us slow down. Um, the times are urgent, let us slow down. And that is that is an invitation to not to reduce our speed, not to do more yoga, even though that is beautiful and necessary oftentimes, not to um, take a vacation or just take a break, but to be broken, you know, and to be broken is to like Robert Johnson, go to the crossroads and give our guitars to the devil, <laughs> to the repulsive is to, to ask the devil to tune our guitars, you know, is to go to the crossroads and offer a sacrifice. I'm speaking deeply metaphorically, yes. uh, metaphorically now that that there is that there is a crossroads cosmovision that is inviting us to leave the highways of controllability, computability, and not to vilify those highways. But if we want to change, if we want to see lasting different differences then we will need the help of the others. Mm. These others are not angelic beings. They are earthy, luminous, and darkened, um, uh, loamy, soil-like ancient um, archetypal becomings. (laughs) And that is what it means to slow down. It is to wrestle with God at the riverside and to have one's name changed by that moment. Thanks, Bio. This was so meaningful and fun and and impactful for me. And I just appreciate all that you're doing in the world. Um, if folks want to find more about your work, where should they go? Your dreams might be one place I might meet you. Um, yes. <laughs> so I'll see you there. Another place is the internet, which is less compelling um, than your dreams. Um and you can type my name in Google and you should you, you could see stuff. Yeah. Okay. We'll make sure to include all of that with the my show notes too. Thank you for your invitation to slow down as we arrive in these urgent times. Really appreciate Thank you. you brother. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. 
The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.